Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Um, I have pretty long arms. I barely could be... So if you were looking down the binocular, I could barely adjust the field diaphragm because it's actually on the back of that huge tower. So it wasn't, um, how should we say, easy to use, but it was um, the best microscope that I've laid my hands on for many, many years. Welcome to The Microscopists. Today, I chat with Jason Swedlow from the University of Dundee, whose open source tools are revolutionising microscopy. While I've known Jason personally for many years, this is a great opportunity to find out more about Jason on a personal level, from everything from his decisions to stop competitive road cycling through to his travels around the world. Catch Jason at home and hear about what motivates him. You'll discover some great tips and tricks for getting to the top, as well as hear about his first microscope experiences, which are quite uh, entertaining to hear about. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today in the microscopist, I'm actually meeting up with Jason Swedlow from the Wellcome Trust Biocentre at the University of Dundee. Jason, hiya. Hi, Pete. Good to see you. Yeah, likewise. Seems to be seeing a lot of you these days with uh, different initiatives going on. Uh, it does. Uh, lots of meetings, lots of Zooms. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot, yes, a lot. And here's another one. Huh? Yes, exactly. Jason, I, I'm going to kick it. You are a travelling man very much known certainly on the circuit you're always very seldom have i ever met you when you've come from dundee usually you've come from somewhere completely different en route back to dundee via somewhere else as well <laughs> uh, so did, actually this lockdown must be terrible you're stuck at home how how's your family coping <laughs> well first of all I'm, i i love it i absolutely love being home this has been fabulous I've been uh, locked down for, I think it's 11 or 12 weeks now. Um, yeah, um, so I, I absolutely love the meeting people on these trips. I love the, the talking and the ideas and the exchange. I hate the airports. I detest the hotels. The planes, I'm okay with, because it's usually quiet and I can work. And there's, you know, I'm not in, you know, 17 meetings and all of that stuff. Um, so I actually don't mind the flights because I can get work done. But um, I have this thing with my kids, uh, just, you know, texting back and forth, you know, you know, where are you, where are you, dad? You know, who knows in yet another anonymous orange hotel room. So, yeah. You know, traveling is part of the job, but also I think it's part of um, a way of connecting with the community. And so that's why. I yeah, I, I think talking to other people as well, Zoom is great. Uh, it's been very productive, very efficient time-wise. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of using the existing networks. Uh, I'm really not sure that it's, uh, you don't necessarily develop close new networks. You don't have that same interaction. I don't know what your thoughts are around that. There is there is an element of that, and it, and it is something actually I've thought about, which is you often get invited to meetings 
um, from people who know you, which is great. And it's always great to see those people and interact and reinforce those connections. An awful lot of great collaborations and exchanges of ideas come out of that. But yes, there's a certain, um, I don't want to say redundancy, um, a bit of repetitiveness. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I'm sure you find the same thing. Um, you do see an awful lot of the same people giving talks over and over again. Um, my father was an academic and uh, he was, you know, his view was you never gave the same talk twice. Um, you know, that's, if you think about that, what that means, it's actually pretty, it's, it's a pretty high bar to set for yourself. I, I have to say, I, I haven't, I, I have given the same talk twice, but definitely, you know, seeing the same things over and over again, sometimes it's good to reinforce things, to hear things a few times, that helps. But on the other hand, yeah, there's, um, it would be nice, I'm not, what I really enjoy is going to, to meetings in communities I know nothing about. So I'm, I'm walking in, I'm literally struggling to keep up with the vocabulary just to understand the words that people are using. Um, uh, you, know, that, that, you know, that ends up being um, quite fresh. It's challenging, but it's also um, an awful lot of fun. No, I, I, I totally agree. And you do get invited to give the same talk. I think we get invited to give the same talk. And it's the same material time and time again, but a slightly different audience. Yeah. Well, actually, each talk is slightly spun slightly differently. Yes. But thank goodness they're a different audience. Otherwise, I'd run out of jokes. <laughs> but if I could keep, keep repeating. I think I've heard all your jokes, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you haven't got, you haven't seen what I've got lined up for you yet. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, I think it does make it kind of refreshing that you can have different audiences and... Uh, I think technology moves on that enables it opens to different markets. Microscopy is great for moving from market to market. The, the high, the highplex imaging, the spatial profiling has just opened up a whole new area for microscopists to be talking to and impacting that we weren't previously, you know, on our agenda. Yeah. Um, it, it's an unbelievably powerful and flexible technology and it just keeps extending its scope. And, um, yeah, I, 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 my version of what you just said, which is very similar, which um, the whole single cell profiling um, explosion, um, you know, and that's for a lot of people, the um, adoption of, um, of imaging, truly imaging in that, in that world has just started. Right? But there's a massive, I mean, it will be, it is becoming and it will be transformational. No, I, I know we've talked a bit about this in the past, but actually I'm going to, I'm going to skip on. I'm not going to look at the past. Just think about the now. IDR, I mean, timeliness for this and the explosion of data. This, this is surely, this is, this is how, th it's not one innovation, is it? It's innovations in parallel that come together that really enable things. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and so tell us a bit about IDR and where you see that fitting into it all. Oh, Jason, you just cut out there for a second for me. Sorry. Uh, I bet you wish you could do that to me all the time. Just kind of just annex me. Jason, tell me a bit about IDR. Okay. So um, IDR, image data resource, built up upon, you know, informed and built, um, and at least initially with the ideas that are coming out of the genomics and the structural biology community, that data sets that are associated with peer-reviewed publications are valuable. They're valuable for integrity, they're invaluable for reuse, they're invaluable for um, 
just reinforcing the, um, the concepts that are being uh, presented in a publication. And so in a very naive way, you know, can we do the same thing for bioimaging data? Um, the problem is, and so, you know, if you, if you put it that way, it's easy to say, oh, yes, we should. Um, and so yeah, put the that's fine. But, right, as you well know, Pete, but um, the plethora of different modalities, the data sizes, the annotations, there's a huge amount of complexity um, in all of this. And so IDR starts, um, um, started the project in 2015. It was built upon some ideas that we worked on um, uh, through Glencoe, the company I run with the JCB Data Viewer um, that was built with Rockefeller University Press. Um, then we, you know, thinking about rather than doing a journal specific resource, now doing effectively as a community resource. And so uh, we're fortunate, fortunate enough to get some funding from BBSRC to support that work. And in collaboration with uh, the European Bioinformatics Institute, BBI, started building that uh, and around I think mid 2016 or so IDR is then in production taking data sets from the community working through the annotations and etc and then publishing them online um, and it's just <laughs> taken off from there um, and so you know the um, the ramp up um, I think initially it was People thought, well, you know, will this work? And, you know, we, has, we still have a long way to go before this is uh, publishing imaging data is routine and um, is happening for the, for the majority of um, studies that use imaging, but um, definitely making progress there. Um, I think a um, pretty important step was uh, 2018, I guess, publishing a paper with our colleagues at EBI, uh, EMBL and EBI, trying to lay out ideas around what, about archiving data, um, annotating data, making uh, targeted databases, so-called added value databases, um, and, and trying to think about linking all of those together. Um, and to imagine what a mature, um, uh, image data, um, the word we use there is ecosystem, you know, or, you know, a community of data, of, of data resources would look like. So, um, yeah. One of the biggest challenges is surely going to be getting the, the user community to know about it. it. It's easy to get the likes of cores to know about it, microscopy geeks to know about it, but actually we're not the ones generating tons of relevant data. It's, it's the users and to get them engaged and to buy into it, right. it's surely going to be a huge challenge. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a slightly trivial answer and there's a serious answer. The trivial answer is, yeah, that's why I'm on the road. And that's why, you know, that's what we're talking about before. He's just a salesman. Yeah. Uh, well, part of science is, you know, communicating your ideas. But more seriously, Pete, uh, actually what's happening now and where adoption is coming from has less to do with us directly and more to do with journal editors. And so um, Nature Springer journals are recommending, you know, have, have on their website, IDRs are recommended um, repository for these data, which is great. But something else is happening where specific editors in journals 
are targeting papers. So a paper that has a significant amount of imaging data is, is sent to us. And literally several times a week now, we get an email that reads more or less word for word, dear IDR, I have a paper about to be accepted in fill in the blank name of the journal. The editor has told me I must deposit the data in IDR. Um, please help, you know, and then, you know, we go from there. So, so I, I guess, look at your analogy being a salesman, I can see your lovely uh, bifold doors behind you. I can imagine the uh, salesman coming in and, and you're saying that's one way, that's what you're doing. And yet you've also got the building regulators coming around telling you, you have to buy double glazing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah I, I mean, we... And, and Jason, before you get, that is sunshine, isn't it? Are you actually really in Dundee? This is Scotland, okay. And uh, yes, I am in Dundee. Welcome to yeah, uh, my house. Uh, it is sunny. Sunny. Yeah. And um, I, I will tell you one lovely thing about living um, up all the way up here on the east coast of Scotland is, um, you know, I listen every morning to, uh, you know, the, rate, the uh, weather forecast on the radio and it's atrocious down in England. And, you know, there'll be storms coming in and even on the west coast of Scotland, but here on the east coast, it's, it's great. Okay. I've got some quick fire questions for you, Jason. Go for it. Hear this goes. So you just got to answer one or the other. No hesitation. Okay. okay. So don't think about it. I'm ready. Tidy or messy? Oh, definitely messy. Tea or coffee? Uh, <laughs> always coffee and large amounts. <laughs> Book or TV? Uh, it has to be one or the other? Yeah. Uh, depends when, time of day. <laughs> eat in or eat out? Uh, both. <laughs> UK or US? Uh, UK. Oh, there goes your American passport. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it were that easy. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've lived in Europe for 20, I think it's coming up to 22 years now. And um, it's been great. I love living here. Yeah, so, so yeah, back in 98, I think it was when you, you joined and set up uh, and started to develop. So let's look back at that because uh, you, you came to the UK, Wellcome Trust Biocentre, uh, up at the University of Dundee and, and developed that into what it is today. And, you know, it's very well known internationally for its imaging, which is very much driven by yourself uh, through that, you know, adopting new technologies. But you're not a biologist from your first degree, are you? Um, um, I, lo I love that look of confusion of when I say you're not a biologist. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> where, is this go where is this going? No, um, uh, degree. What was your degree? Uh, bachelor's, bachelor's degree in chemistry. Um, five years um, racing bicycles. Uh, and um, so you had five years. So from your degree, you then spent five years racing bicycles before going back into science? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So how serious was your cycling? Uh, pretty. Um, so uh, finished um, university, um, was really enjoying racing. Um, my parents, my dad was an academic, my mom was a nurse. We weren't exactly sure what to do with someone who was devoting themselves to going down hills very fast and things like that. Um, and actually I've had subsequently had some discussions with my mother. I was, I, she was pretty worried. 
Um, but uh, um, initially in Boston and then in San Francisco, I was racing. Um, had a job in San Francisco at UCSF, um, working in a laboratory. And I was learning a lot about pretty kind of hardcore biochemistry, protein purification. And um, UCSF at the time was this amazing place. There was just so much going on. It still is, still an amazing um, research environment. Um, and I, I got the bug. And um, um, admittedly, going fast downhills is a lot of, is pretty, is pretty <coughs> But you start thinking about the longevity and, you know, at some point start thinking, you know, start seeing, well, okay, this is fun, but, you know, what, you know, there's a, eventually, you know, a neuron fires and says, okay, time to be serious. And so, uh, you must uh, be semi-pro, pro, semi-pro? No, all amateur, all amateur. And so the problem with that, Pete, in, in at least at that time in the bicycling world, the, the, the transition from amateur to, you know, I, I was on a team, we had some sponsorships, et cetera, but it was pretty lean. Um, so you have to work to, um, you know, for your food and your tires, basically. Um, and I, you know, to make the transition to, to, to being a full pro is a big step. And I was racing against guys, so I was getting up at five in the morning, uh, doing 40 or 50 miles, um, uh, getting home, going to work, uh, coming back in the evening, going out for another 30, 40, sometimes much longer, um, just to get the miles on the legs. But in fact, we had, we had um, pros staying with us in our apartment. And they, they were doing um, more miles, but they were getting up at, you know, 9 o'clock <laughs> and going out and coming home, you know, coming home, having lunch have a nap, going out again, and that that's the difference. I mean, it's just impossible to compete with someone who's able to do so, that. So you say you got the bug uh, when you were at UCSF. Is that the first? I guess as a chemist, you were never really using light microscopes, no, no, I'd no. be guessing. Uh, obviously, a lot of your career has been based around the use and application and data of microscopy. So when was the first time you used a microscope? Um, my first rotation in graduate school. It was a complete accident. Um, so I'll try to make this as concise as possible. 1986-1987, um, the first examples of what was called site-directed mutagenesis were published. And so, you know, you could look at the sequence of a, of a protein, mutate an amino acid, and then look at what happened and then assay that, that effect. And so this was being done on enzymes, but you know, the, idea, the technology to make a, to make a point mutation in, in, a, in a cDNA had just been developed and the protein expression was in the very early days. And Dave Agard's group at UCSF was, if not the first, then definitely one of the first to make a mutation that just didn't just kill the enzyme. So, um, but in, in fact, they had um, uh, they had switched the specificity of a of a bacterial protease from um, from um, small hydrophobics um, amino acids, and and just by changing the um, binding site, they had broadened the specificity of the enzyme. So 
rational design. Um, and it was mind blowing that, you know, you could do such a thing. And so that's what I was going to do. That was my, that was my career goal. And I, I wanted to join Dave's lab and I was interviewing him, um, interviewing with him, I should say. Um, and, um, we talked an awful lot about the various projects. And at the end of about an hour discussion one evening, he said, you know, I, I, um, I have this other side of my lab, you know, do you want to hear about that? And, you know, I thought it would be rude to say no. So I said, sure. <laughs> and he said, you know, we do a lot of three dimensional structures of cells using microscopy. And I thought, you know, I had no idea what he was talking about. But after, you know, a few discussions, it seemed like, um, so UCSF at that time was one of the few pro uh, graduate programs that was doing rotations. So you would spend a year as a graduate student, your first year, um, sampling different laboratories. At, at that time, it was a very um, novel idea. So I just thought, well, hey, you know, I'll just, I'll do a rotation in this just to learn about it, just because it sounds cool. And short version is, you know, that was it. It was over. Um, <laughs> I was a microscopist. So. Yeah. I, I, congratulations. Welcome to the club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think a lot of us were very late to the club or relatively late to the club. So just thinking, uh, a bit more about the microscopes themselves. Uh, tell us about this one. <laughs> well, that's a nice axiom map. And there's a few people in the world who have seen those. Um, so that was a design that came out of Zeiss in the 80s uh, to celebrate the retirement of one of their senior engineers. At least the way I heard the story, I haven't verified this with anybody in Zeiss, but this was effectively their retirement gift. Design your, your microscope. And you can sort of see in the image behind you, it has various modules. Um, but um, you can also see that you can't see the whole thing in that image. So the, this is an inverted microscope. The objective lens and turret are way at the top. Um, I have pretty long arms. I barely could be, so if you were looking down the binocular, I could barely adjust the field diaphragm because it's actually on the back of that huge tower. So it wasn't, um, how should we say, easy to use, but it was um, the best microscope that I've laid my hands on for many, many years. It was the darkest microscope, so no stray light, and so fluorescence, just the, just the images were incredibly crisp. And uh, in my PhD lab, so Dave Agar and John Sadat were, the f were one of two labs, and I think they were leading the way to get a CCD camera and put it on a microscope and that. They, they had a Zyzac, John had a Zyzaxia map and they got a CCD camera from Tektronix um, and they put it on that microscope. It was one of the first digital microscopes in the world. And that was my PhD. Wow, <clears throat> that's cool. I've got to say it's got one of the lo longest focus stalks that I've seen on a microscope as well. That is huge. Yeah. It's like a magic wand. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has to be, right? Because actually, you are, you know, you need a way, you, you know, your arms are kind of reaching around all this. No, it's, it's, yeah, it wasn't ergonomically designed. Right? That wasn't its point. Um, in its own microscope lab or in the open bench? <laughs> no, in a positive pressure uh, room, filtered air, tacky mat, the whole thing. Yeah, so filtered air, which sounds quite good because uh, I could have sworn you've told me something in the past about uh, microscope rooms maybe not being the best place in the world. 
Yeah, so, okay, here's the story. Um, so you imagine this is a positive pressure, fil all filtered, tacky mass on the outside, special room for this microscope, and uh, um, there's various computers in the room as well, um, controlling um, the CCD, and, and the other revolutionary thing about this microscope, again, you have to remember when this was, this is the late 80s, um, Yasushi Hiroka, um, in John's in John's lab, had managed to get a stepper motor onto the um, uh, onto the objective turret. So now you had a three-dimensional optical sectioning microscope. So the stuff that we now take for granted, no one would even think twice about the novelty of that. This was extraordinary. So um, yeah. Uh, Amazing lenses, all of that stuff um, for at that time to collect a three-dimensional uh, set of optical sections through a DAPI stained nucleus was an amazing feat and took an awful lot of time on the computer, et cetera. So you would sit there collecting these data sets and, you know, I was sitting in the, in the microscope room collecting some data and John Sadat, uh, my other PhD advisor opened the door and said, you know, everything's going okay? I said, yeah. And he said, he kind of sniffed the room and he said, did you fart? And I said, uh, no, <laughs> I definitely didn't fart. And he said, are you sure? And I said, John, believe me, <laughs> if I farted, you know, we, we would know it. He said, okay. We don't fart in the microscope room. The fart gases condense on the, on the lenses. And, um, and that is a true story. And, um, but it also, I, I would just say, it speaks to the exacting standards that John had for his microscopy and, um, and the way that, so just to talk, you know, it would, it would be hours to talk about how all, everything was integrated on that microscope. I'd love to know the science behind that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. How the gases collect. Sorry, sorry for long story, Pete. Just switching tack a bit. So you, you came to Dundee in '98. How did you find the train? That's quite a big move to to go from one country to another country. Yeah. yeah how, how was that? How did you find that? You know, were you, were you nervous about switching countries? Confident? What were the problems of that that actually brought about in itself? Oh, I, probably the short version Pete is that you're in a you're in a place where people are nominally speaking the same language so they use the same words but everything is different and so you don't you really have no idea what's going on around you and so you know the the decision to leave the US was complex had job offers in the US job offers uh, and, and the offer for Dundee here in the UK, and um, uh, it seemed like an, a bit of an adventure. Um, but you know, arriving in a place where people say things to you, and you're conscious that you have no idea what someone is saying, and you don't even know what questions to ask, trying to clarify. Um, that's that's that was the challenge, and that's that was that's true in social settings. True, you know trying to find schools for your kids. It's trying, you know, and it's true in the scientific environment as well. So, yeah, it was, it was I mean, it's hard to move, I think, like, you know, but most scientists have, have, have felt that, right? 
and you'd recommend a big switch, different nationalities? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I guess so, being as you chose UK over US. Well, I mean, but you know, it's right. It was right for myself. It was right for my family. Um, so yeah, it's worked out. I mean, that that's my view. That's that's a very personal view. Right? So just just thinking. So that's one challenge. You've got quite a big career. You've had lots of diversity to it. What's when have you found the most challenging time? That's a big sigh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, challenging. There's lots of different types of challenges. Um, and so I guess, you know, I could ask back, okay, well, what kind of challenge do you mean, Pete? But I think probably, you know, the hardest time is really that transition. And I, 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 this was my experience. I think it's true for an awful lot of academics. It's that transition where you're going from, um, you know, junior independent investigator into, into a tenured position or, or whatever that is. There's different names for it in different um, worlds. It's a really tough time. It is really, really tough. And it's tough on your head. Um, it's quite demanding uh, just, you know, what you have to deliver. Um, yeah, I would say that was, that was one of the toughest times. I've that's a, and that's mostly, I presume, down to pressure then and, and, and self-pressure, a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, when I came to Dundee, like I said, my dad was an academic and I had, I'd seen an awful lot of the rough and tumble of academia. Um, and an awful, I have to say, a lot of things I see happening around me and happening to my colleagues. I remember my father talking about, in, you know, in the, in the 60s, right, when, over, you know, over dinner, you know, things that would happen. So, um, so I'm not, in no way do I mean to, to say that, you know, to dim, diminish um, the challenges of being an academic, it's hard. But it definitely is something, it's just, there's a lot of it seems to be intrinsic to the system that we've built. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, no, sorry. I, I, think, I think that's a, yeah, a tough time. I think, I think that, I think you'll have a lot of, uh, people listening or watching that agree with that and are possibly feeling that now as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I will, I will say that, you know, I'm now, I'm now officially old. Right. And so I can say these things, but it took me decades to learn that how tough it is, is related directly to a, a commitment to being, um, you know, world-class and excellent. And, and being world-class and excellent is really hard, right? And um, um, when I came to Dundee, because I was an academic, I, you know, I said, okay, I said to myself, I have to schedule a meeting with the department chair, at that time a guy by the name of Pete Downs. Um, and I need to talk with him about the requirements for tenure and get this all clear. And, uh, I, I scheduled that appointment and I, you know, I said, you know, I was very polite, you know, thank you for meeting me. I'd like to know how you, you know, plan on um, you know, evaluating me for tenure so I can properly organize you know, my, uh, my targets and, you know, all of the things around, you know, focus and organization and planning. And he said, international reputation. 
I said, no, I didn't say this, but I thought, axe murderer? <laughs> and, um, and you have a lot of citations at that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I said, well, okay. And I, we, we had this discussion, but I, it took me a while to understand what Pete was saying was part of this was a Dundee thing. Dundee had a desire to put itself on the map to be a world-class research institution. And what that meant was that when, for example, Pete or any of the other senior staff would go to meetings, they wanted to, they wanted to hear people talking about you, frankly. I mean, you know, why would people, why would be people be talking about you? Okay, well, maybe axe murder, but more, serious, more seriously, world-class science, right? Yeah. And so I think that's, that's what makes it so hard is that the aspiration um, is to be absolutely world-class. Yeah, making significant contributions. Yeah, and, and, and we now all live in a global community and a global scientific enterprise. And so by definition, what we, what we do when you, you, know, you use the word significant or significance, it has to be on that scale. That's incredibly challenging. And it's really, really super hard. It, it, it puts all of us at you know, a, a very high bar. So, so this is interesting because you can do it. You can make a significant impact. But you can't just make one significant impact. You, you, you know, you ride well, a wave and, yeah. and eventually that wave will come to the end and you then have to look for the next wave. And you, yeah. you have to keep looking to make those significant impacts. And actually, so you started off as a chemistry, de as a degree, you went into your biophysics, you moved into far more cell biology. And now actually a lot of your work is data analysis uh, through the microscopy era. And so actually you've, you've been surfing all sorts of different oceans, not even just different waves. So yeah, it seems to me as though actually opportunistic is the wrong term to use, but you see where there's an opportunity and where your strengths are yeah. and you, and you followed them and you've not been scared to change tack. And yeah. I wish I, I wish that all sounds great, Pete. I wish I could say that uh, there's any kind of foresight or even thought about, Oh, am I changing attack? We, I think in all cases, it's, you know, wow, this is an interesting problem. And this, the, this, this problem I'm facing is stopping me from making progress. And so I guess I have to think about it and address it. Um, and that's about the, I'll confess, that's the depth of analysis or kind of um, reflection before embarking on any of these things. But you've never left it to say, well, there's a problem. I need someone to solve it so I can carry on my research. You've seen a problem and shifted to solve the problem. You've taken it upon yourself to move it. Well, at least the problems I've chosen to, to engage with. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not all, not all, you can't solve all problems, right? And so I think you know, there is a bit of, um, you know, is this, so this was this was a big discussion I remember in graduate school at UCSF. You know, is this an important problem, right? And we would have these discussions about, you know, is this an important question? And, you know, is this a fundamental question that is um, important to solve? 
And I think one of the things that was around UCSF and definitely, definitely in um, uh, Dave and John's lab is marrying a, a scientific problem with the technological capabilities to solve that problem and understanding that the two go hand in hand. And, and sometimes you don't need new technologies, but sometimes you do. And when you do, you have to, you can't pretend that you don't, because you do. So sorry, it's kind of um, trite, but that's true. Yep. And the other one is to, to figure out how to, how to yeah. Um, you know, okay, what is the technological steps that you needed to deliver? So. So you say about following opportunities. I, I mentioned following opportunities here. It's been kind of just, I've had to take that opportunity. But actually, you've got your own spin-out company as well. So following the open microscopy environment and moving that forward. So tell us a bit more about that, because that, that, that's not trivial either, setting up a, a, start, well, a successful spin-out now. Well, yeah, I mean... So OME started as an open source project um, and we had made some progress. So OME started um, 2000, 2002. The first two grants were from the Wellcome Trust here in the UK, late 2002. Um, and we started making some progress and by about 2005, um, we had some commer commercial companies coming to us and saying, well, this is all great, but there's these open source licenses. We need, we need a commercial, we need a commercial version. And so Glencoe Software was founded explicitly with the goal of, of having another uh, way to um, uh, deliver the technology, to expand the audience or expand the user base or to expand the adoption because we had pharmaceutical companies and technology companies saying, we want to engage with this, but we, you know, especially at that time, it's changed an awful lot uh, over the last several years. But, you know, you know, 2005, 2006, I guess these discussions were, we were having discussions a year or so before that, you know, no pharmaceutical company would allow an open source library in, in, inside their operation. Or at least they would say they, they wouldn't. Sometimes they didn't know they were actually using open source libraries, but anyway. Um, um, and I actually, um, in the very early days, we were uh, talking to some of the microscope, microscope ma uh, manufacturers. We we're talking to um, some of the old, you might remember Metamorph. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, so we visited uh, uh, their, uh, their offices in um, Eastern Pennsylvania and um, their president, Jeff Stuckey, in this meeting, he said, well, this is all fine, but you know, we, absolutely, we absolutely cannot use open source software. Um, you know, we will not allow open source software through our door. And um, his CTO was sitting there and he said, well, actually, um, we use open source software to run all our mail servers. And, and you know, he looked at him and said, we do? Said, yeah, absolutely, it's the best stuff out there. And so, um, so part of it was education, but part of it was also providing a, uh, a choice for yeah. a broader community to, to access this technology. Yeah. So, so that's been successful. Your research has obviously been fantastically successful. How do you balance well, spinning out a company and your academic research? Great face. 
<laughs> balance is not something that is not a word that I would really bring to the table on this one. <laughs> it's uh, uh, how do you survive? Is probably more. Um, uh, the best answer to that is look. You know, I, I told you why. You know, there's reasons that we do these things. I work with an amazing group of people. My colleagues are absolutely world-class um, and they're just the best. And that's the, probably the best way is not, probably the best question is not how do you balance anything like this because, um, you know, everything is, um, it, it's, it's an awful lot of work, but I, I have an amazing um, group of colleagues that I work with. Um, the team that I work with is, is, and have now worked with for some cases uh, approaching uh, 15, 18 years, um, are just incredibly dedicated, incredibly capable, you know, expert um, and passionate. Boy, oh boy, do we argue. We, we get in each other's faces. We will we'll go to the map. You know, to, I mean, we will argue quite vociferously because what you know, and that's the passion. Um, do you always win those the answer I have. Yeah. Do you always win those discussions? Never. <laughs> Never. No. No, no, that's not true. I think one of the things I most enjoy about OME and Glencoe both is that no one in the organization uh, is is right all the time or is the you know the singular voice or view right right you know i i can't you know i can't participate in those projects without my colleagues and they can't participate without me i bring a lot of biological know-how and domain expertise on that side they bring a lot of expertise in informatics uh, tooling um yeah, they've got expertise outside of your own expertise. Hence, they're a, a good team. I've got yeah, to say, I'm quite proud, actually. Yeah, we one, one of my contributions is actually one of my ex-PhDs with Mark Coles there. So, Roger Lee is up there with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't right. imagine him ever arguing, though. <laughs> I can see him not listening to you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Roger worked with us for many years and incredibly productive. You know, I don't, you know, we don't run an organization that's about, you know, listening to me. And, you know, listening is one thing, you know, uh, taking commands. Is, that's, not, that's not how this is supposed to work. Yeah. So with all those stresses, uh, balancing it, I, I know it's not easy. And actually, you did give me some, uh, some photos at this point. So at this, this one. Uh, this is this is a Jason. Do you know this picture is brilliant? I, your face on the picture itself and your hair, wow! Yeah. It is all over the place, mate. A uh, beautiful day um, on Where a beach it? in Santorini, uh, in Greece. Um, yeah, lovely day with my family. Actually, um, uh, my wife, uh, kids, uh, my sisters, my mom. Yeah, we're all there together. Wow. And Womley, so you go to Greece with your family, your children, oh, your mom, and, and you call that winding down? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. With, with, with all of them together. And then, and then there's, 
Yeah. <laughs> this, this picture is of you on, where, where is it, Jason, this picture? That's the Isle of Harris, um, the Hebrides in Scotland, and that's October in the Hebrides. So anybody knows anything about the seasons in the UK, um, it's getting pretty rough <laughs> at that time. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's the um, autumn holidays. Um, and I had a brilliant idea to drag <laughs> the family out to the Isle of Harris. I've got to say, I'm just looking at your daughter there, propped up, leaning against you, thinking this was not such a smart idea, Dad. Dad, you think uh, you're clever? This isn't one of your best ideas. We talk about it fondly at the time, and still we refer to it as the holiday of death marches. Because yeah. we walked up and down the island and across. And, and the kids were like, this is, I guess I'm not allowed to swear. So I'm not, I'm not allowed to actually say what they said. <laughs> yes. they, look, they look too nice to swear. I'm sure, sure none of your son or your daughter would be swearing at that point. Uh, engaged. Yeah, he, he looks like he's enjoying the nature and looking down and seeing what's actually happening. Uh, here we go, walking again. No, we had, it was a lovely time. Harris is beautiful. Um, it's one of the, yeah, it's my I wife. This one. Jason, I love this picture because I, 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 you can give me an even bigger quiff and now I've got a different wife. That, that's, <laughs> it's a perfect size. Well, she'll be, she'll be back in about half an hour. You can, <laughs> uh, that's in Singapore. Um, and actually, I mean, you know, you've talked oh, about- I reckon I know where that is actually in Singapore as well. Um, it's in the Marine, Marina Bay Gardens, I think. Yeah, just, just by the race circuit, isn't it? For the Formula One, it's the pit lanes are just the other side of there. Um, was on an advisory board there for many years at, um, at the A-Star, one of the A-Star institutes and um, would go out there once a year and a couple of times Melfi came out with me and we had a, you know, a lo lovely time after, after meeting. So I, I guess that's, you know, on the travel side, I quite deliberately don't add any extra days almost ever. Um, except if I'm with my family, so. That's cool, so they, did, they get to go out occasionally with you then? Oh, yeah. So, so Elmi's never been in a good enough location to bring your family, is that what you're saying? So I've never seen them at an Elmi meeting, for example. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, now you've just offended half of the people around Europe and all the places that it's taken. I know, I'm, I'm gonna get it for that one. Um, you've offended the US, you've offended the rest of Europe. <laughs> Oh, well, honestly, um, I, I, um, yeah, what can I say? Um, How do you remain motivated? Because you know, you've, so you've had so much success, you keep moving forward. I, I think we'll talk next about Bioimaging UK, Eurobioimaging, Global Bioimaging. Uh, yeah, this, the amount of effort and energy you must, it must take out of you. To, you've got Glenco, you've got your research group, yeah. You've got these initiatives on the go. You, you've got, what keeps you motivated? How on earth do you keep the momentum going? Uh, I, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to answer that question because I almost don't recognize, how do I, I haven't even, I, I wouldn't even know how to answer that question. I, I just do. I, I mean, the science is so darn important. Um, I think it's one of the privileges of being um, a research scientist is what you're doing is by its nature uh, a contribution to your society. Um, 
you know, it's, it's a real privilege to have such a position. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that's enough. I don't, I don't know how to answer the question beyond that. Um, yeah, I, I'll put words in your mouth. You mentioned earlier, you've got a really good support team. That, that, that oh, yeah. I mean, one, maybe a way of answering your question. Um, I have an amazing team. I feel uh, duty bound to, de- to do my job for them, to, to deliver for them. Yeah. And often to, you know, if you strip it down, you know, my job is to work with them and, and for us together to do important work. But my job also, going back to what we were just saying before, my job is to, you know, market, to present the work, to show the world what we're doing, to hopefully um, see how that, our work can impact their work. My job is also to continue to raise the funds to fund the work, right? To, to write the grants, et cetera. So um, there, you know, there's, you know, motivation for funding, you're feeding an awful lot of families. <laughs> I mean, it, to, to put it very bluntly, right? Yeah, I've just realized why you accepted this interview now. <laughs> <laughs> you're just gonna keep the message out there, keep it going. No, I, thought, I thought it was just a friendly thing, say, yeah, Pete, I'll do it with you. Not uh, at all. At least you'll tweet about it when it comes out. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I'll, 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 I'll do my job on Twitter for you. <laughs> uh, so moving through, actually, I, I've got a couple of other bits. What is your favorite publication? Uh, it doesn't have to be that you've authored or co-authored. It doesn't have to be your stellar publications. Yeah, which one are you most fond of? Um, I think probably two for two different reasons. Um, the first is the main paper that came out of my PhD. Um, uh, and I think if anybody read it now, they would just, God, that's, that's what a pathetic piece of work. But, you know, it was one of the first live imaging experiments, right? And it was, and, um, you know, I remember clearly there, there was a huge question in the field about how chromosomes were constructed and how various proteins were acting on the um, on chromosomes. And, you know, there was decades of work looking at different types of looking at chromosomes from different um, preparation methods, different fixation methods and so on. And this was one of the first experiments to look at a, in, a, in a live organism. And the results were astounding. It was the results, you know, the first time I got the results, so I'm sitting at a microscope at very late, one or two in the morning, and the way the protein was moving on and off the chromosomes, no one had ever predicted before, right, that anything could happen. And in fact, um, our cameras weren't so sensitive. And so basically there was this moment in the cell cycle where the protein I was looking at, Topoi Sunrise 2, completely diffused off of the chromosomes. What that meant is the signal was diffused below the detection limit of the camera. And basically the signal went, you know, all I had was dark noise. And I'm like, I was just sitting there thinking, what happened? You know, how did, how did this system break? Now I'm looking at dark noise, right? Why, how could it possibly, what could have gone wrong? And then the signal came back as, as the protein relocalized. And 
then I fell out of my chair and bruised my bum really badly. <laughs> but you know, it was it was a profound scientific result. So yeah. there's one. So Jason, I'm, I'm going to ask about that first publication. That was in the days you had to write it, print it, and post it, wasn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, do you, do you actually recall? I recall my first my first moment. I remember going with it in the brown envelope and putting it, wishing it well as you post it through. Can you remember that moment? Well, there's, I think, two copies of the printed manuscript, two copies of the, um, all of the made-up figures on storyboards, etc. right? And I think on that one, I think we probably had them photographed and submitted the photographs. Um, and all of that is in that big brown manila envelope. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's so different now. You don't remember clicking send, but putting it through that letterbox, kissing it, praying, <laughs> and putting it through saying, please be successful, no, please like it. I think this is two old men, you know, like remembering their, their good Oi, oi, less of the old this side. Cheek <laughs> <laughs> of it, man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that one. And then I think the other one is um, our paper that was, um, we published. We, we The first paper we published on Amaro, the state and management system that we built over many years, that work started in 2004, 2005. The paper was published in two. 2012, I think, and just um, an enormous amount of work from a whole bunch of different people, and brought in contributions from from the community. Um, it was it was just a it was just a great example of what we were trying to do with OME. So. That's eight years of work to get to the the, the key paper for that work. I, I mean, and in person years, I ah, oh big a lot many many times eight. Which, which I think is actually a credit. You've mentioned a couple of the funders already today, BBS, RC, Wellcome Trust, and so forth. I know there's been funding from other avenues. You know, they put a lot of trust in scientists. They put a lot of trust in you. Uh, some of these ideas are very holistic. They're, they're very community-driven. Yeah. They're not, in, in some of these cases, they're not to solve a specific biological question, which fits kind of a bit outside their remit <sighs> at some cases. But they put the faith in it. Uh, it's taken eight years to get to the big impact paper for 2012. IDR was an incredibly fast turnaround. I did, you know, that was within a year or so of coming through. But I think our funders, we've got to give them credit uh, for putting faith because this is where the big impacts are made. And sometimes it doesn't happen overnight. You've got to keep going and have faith in your work. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've been very, very fortunate to have here in the UK, quite forward-looking uh, funding bodies. I, I don't, and, and I, you know, they don't, I'm sure they don't, I know they don't do this with all of their funding. Right? They are willing to take chances and willing to, to have that longer view. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, we've, we've been a beneficiary of, I think, a, a great uh, funding environment here in the UK. And, and I, I would, actually rewind back almost to the start of today that international profile you have to be a salesman you have to make sure that people know and are aware that there's a need in the market uh, so someone going to welcome out the idea but the community has to be ready to have that foresight so when it goes to reviewers they already are kind of aware that this is a need and so it does come back it is a salesman type person it's an international profile and getting messages across and, and checking it's real and needed yeah i think I mean, I mean, I'm a little concerned about the, sta the, the state of science 
So, you know, you're talking about giving talks at meetings, et cetera. Um, the pace of publication now is so high that, you know, keeping track at all and reading things deeply is, is super hard. It's just, you know, if, speaking for myself, it's beyond the, you know, physical capability. You know, so, I mean, you know, there's an awful lot of science on Twitter. There's an enormous amount of imaging on Twitter, right? So people are exchanging ideas in that medium. I think that, that there's a reason people are doing that, right? I also think there's a reason that, you know, we have this proliferation of, of meetings and uh, symposia, et cetera, and all of that's great. Um, but it, yeah, I think it does serve a purpose in a condensed, in two and a half or three days, you or I or our colleagues can sit through a very dense packed presentation and get a sample of what's going on, right? Um, uh, but I think that fits the, the bioimaging community in general is very collegiate. Of oh, course, we compete against each other, but everyone supports yeah. and helps each other. It, 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 I think that's quite exceptional across, uh, there's one or two other technologies, but a lot of other communities are, are far more divided. And I think, uh, yeah, there's been several initiatives of Biomaging UK is, is one initiative that's really brought the UK certainly closer together and follows across Europe into uh, global Biomaging as well. Yeah. And you've been behind a lot of that in the UK and Europe as well. So well, just briefly before, before we wrap up, It'd be good just to hear a, a snippet because not everyone will have heard of Bioimaging UK, Eurobioimaging, Global Bioimaging. So actually, salesman, I'm going to give you <laughs> so, a couple of minutes to pitch on this. Okay, so, okay, the sales pitch. This is all about research infrastructure. And again, yeah, I'm kind of going back to what we say, what we're talking about. These are about capabilities, about open access to those capabilities that, that then underpin uh, scientific um, discovery and advances. Um, one of the principles is that imaging is an absolutely key component to uh, modern biological and biomedical science. But, you know, Pete, and you know this as well as anyone, you know, over the last couple of decades, the, the rapid um, development of new technologies, and critically, so, you know, with you guys at York, you know, maintaining that capability for your, you know, even for your local community is, just, yes. is really hard, right? And it's basically impossible uh, to have enough funding and enough expertise. And actually, I mean, nominally, you know, maybe somebody could provide the funding, but I don't think there's the expertise to, play, to deliver that technology at all sites say in the UK or even you know, Europe, worldwide, et cetera. And I think that the, that realization um, started to, to appear that there was a challenge emerging there sort of 2005, 2008, something like that. Um, Jan Ellenberg gets, um, from EMBL Hutterberg gets an awful lot of credit for leading the charge on neurobioimaging and starting to this idea of a common open access research infrastructure that would provide those capabilities to the scientific community. And the short version is a European scientist should be able to identify the technologies that he or she needs to do the experiment that, that they need for, to answer their question. They need to be able to 
understand what those technologies are. Um, they need to be able to uh, identify who has those technologies. Then through some review process, access those technologies, run the appropriate experiments, get the data, go home, do the analysis they need, publish the paper, right? And that, that's a democratization of those, of those technologies, realizing that they're too expensive to put in all people's physical hands at all times, and that we don't have the staffing and expertise to deliver those technologies. And so we have to, do, we have to there has to be a smarter way than just, I'll have mine and you'll have yours. And I think that smarter way idea ends up playing out at different levels, possibly at different geographical scales. So at the level of a country like the UK, the way of thinking about how you would do that, then on the continental level, um, Europe, um, yeah. how would you do that? And even on the global level, so how do we bring up and uh, have that kind of exchange uh, and, and access at the global level? Um, yeah. So maybe not so dissimilar to data sharing. <laughs> this is, you know, it's, and actually, we're living now in a, in a time where we're going to have, we've just come out of a period of austerity, supposedly. We're just going into another financial crisis, and the more cost-effective we can be, the better it will be, and the more we can share. You know, okay. So from a UK side, obviously we have Brexit, which everyone knows about. Ultimately, science doesn't recognise borders, and it's really important to move that because we can work far more efficiently together than we can competing against each other and duplicating efforts. I yeah. think we're going to have to do more of that to respond quicker to, to address scientific needs. And I, I think actually the latest outbreak is a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, you know, there's the fiscal aspect to this. I think we have a responsibility to our community to be as efficient and powerful as we can with the technologies that are ultimately funded by our society. So yes to that. But I also think um, the exchange of information and ideas is key to advancing, you know, mo moving our scientific uh, advances as, as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I completely agree. Um, so I, I, I've, you know, something I, I quite like finding out about people is what car they drive. But what was your first car? <laughs> oh, I can see where these questions are going. Uh, a VW Golf. Gosh, you were successful early on, weren't you? Why that? You didn't get a car too much older. You had seen it. <laughs> this was a cast off from uh, a cast off from a sort of friend who became less of a friend when I discovered how he had temporarily tweaked the engine so that it would get me home. But after that, it fell apart. <laughs> and. Uh, well, it was very community-minded of him, though. You were, that's, that's, that's very, very in tune with what you got to. And what are you driving at the moment, Jason? That would be a VW Golf. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me it's not the same one. Uh, definitely not. Um, now that, the, the first one... Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's somewhere in a junky, uh, junkyard in uh, San Francisco. Um, I... I Glad to see the last of it, but yeah, it's still golf. So actually, that surprises me. I, I thought with your passion for walking with the family, living up in the near, near the Highlands in Scotland, you might have at least had a four by four. Or, or have you had that in the past? 
Uh, haven't, but cars gotten us everywhere we needed to go. So, um. <laughs> Actually, I'm kind of surprised you didn't say it was an aeroplane as your, your current car. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Jason, uh, you've been brilliant to talk to. Oh, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, it's been good fun. Uh, I, 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 yeah, that microscope room, that, that image is going to last with me for a long time. <laughs> and, uh, I, will, I will see you on Zoom, <laughs> no doubt. So can I ask you a question, Pete? Uh, oh, go on. <laughs> so how many of these interviews have you done? Uh, done so far. Uh, we've done, this is number four. Uh, there's another two already scheduled and... Uh, yeah, the, the, my list is quite long, actually. I, I, I'm starting with, uh, yeah, close, close friends first, I think. Uh, but there's some, yeah, some really good uh, ones also lined up. And um, so why are, you, why are you doing this? What's your motivation? Do you know what? I, I, uh, one, of the, one of the people I'm going to be talking to, and hopefully both of them, uh, Scott Fraser inspired this idea. Uh, Elmi Dublin. Uh, do you know, I, I, I actually hate introducing people, which is perverse considering what I'm doing here. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if you're one of the organizers, you have to up and introduce a plenaries. And I'm worried about getting their background wrong, quoting stats and just going through their CV. And actually in the audience, I find that I don't find that terribly interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I sat down with Scott and I thought, actually, let's just talk to him. Let's find out what his interests are. Let's introduce him. Scott, not, not the scientist, but Scott himself. And he has such an amazing background. Yeah. Really entertaining. It just shows that actually, I think we always see the stellar stars in science, like yourself, like Jean-Philippe Koch-Schwartz, like Tony Wilson. We see them as these people who have got a focus, they know where they're going, and that's where they get to, and they work night and day at it. Whereas actually, they're in a completely different place to where they started out. They have an amazing stories outside they have excitement outside of work and it's balancing that. And I think that's a great message to get to uh, PhDs and postdocs that, that are thinking, I have to do this, this, this. Well, no, you know, as you said earlier, you follow a path. You don't know where it's going and, and you follow where you can deliver. I also think, I mean, uh, Scott is an, you know, an amazing scientist. Um, consider him a friend. I mean, he's, so much fun to be around because um, he's very quick and um, very imaginative. Um, and so I'm sure that, you know, that was a fun uh, interview. I think one of the most important, you know, well, you know, you, I feel a little bit, um, I don't want to say intimidated, but you talk about, yes, um, my group and I have been successful. Jennifer Limicott Schwartz's group has been incredibly successful, but boy, oh boy, with we, you know, we've all had a lot of failures as well. Right? And I think there's, um, I, you know, and I, and I know Scott has as well, and, you know, but that's part of science and part of recognizing that, you know, what you're doing is you're trying things and you're, you're looking for opportunities. Some things pan out and they're great. And going back to your question about salesmen, you know, Yes, all of us will, you know, stand up at the podium and present those stories as well as we possibly can. Part of, are we selling? Okay, maybe, but really what we're doing is exchanging our ideas about our, our, our ideas about the science that we're, we're, we're working on, about the systems that we're interested in. Um, 
And so that, that appears like, oh, they have been so successful. And that's true. But that's because of, a, you know, um, through lots of things that haven't worked out so well. You know, I've got a question. Recognizing when a failure, when something is just not working, okay, you know, it's not working, but, you know, okay, what can I learn from that, right? You know, and actually in the OME case, yeah, in the OME case, we had, I'll just tell, this is a very personal story, but we started down a technical path around 2001, 2002. And, um, and, I, uh, and I had managed to get the first batch of funding for OME's work late 2002 from the Wellcome Trust. Uh, talk about taking gamble. Um, by about two, we, and we were working down this path and, but we were running, we could start seeing the limitations of what we were doing. And by about 2004, and I was gonna have to get the next round of funding um, around about 2005, okay. And, um, received an email from a guy at Stanford who had, um, who was really trying to use the work that we were doing. I um, was picking up the software and working it through. And he said, you know, he wrote in this email, he said, you know, I'm really amazed. What you guys are doing is so incredible. You know, it's really impressive what you've been able to achieve. I have to say it took me six months of reading all the documentation code to actually understand what, what you guys have, do, have, have done. But now that I have, you know, I think I see what's going on. And at that point I realized, you know, we were sunk, right? We, you know, and I, and the words I used at the time were much more profane, right? You know, you know, you know so that was, that was, we, we were failing and so, okay, we're, we're, we're not doing, we're not delivering for our community now. And that's a failure, especially given the, the, you know, what had been invested. So what are we gonna do about that, right? How do we, how do we figure out how to move forward, right? Out of, out of that conversation, out of the recognition that we had failed, you know, was born the ideas around Amaro, discussions with Josh Moore, Chris Allen, et cetera. And, and then an idea of a new idea, which then we start taking forward. So I think that's, I don't know if that's, that's probably um, more, you know, it's probably worth remembering that um, those successes come from our hard work. Yeah, and I think there's always regrets, things you've had to leave behind that you wish you could have solved but maybe technology or something else just wasn't in place at the time. And doesn't mean it's not revisit worth revisiting 10 years later. Yeah, exactly. Things move on. Things that weren't possible or didn't seem right, things do change. And that, that's a key thing is never to uh, say, I've tried that, done that, didn't work. I tried that, done that, didn't work 10 years ago, but actually it might do now. Yeah. We're um, actually at, at such a moment in OME, we're looking at some new technologies that re- recast a lot of those early ideas but now with a completely new ways of, of um, implementation which make it maybe possible to do some of those things so, yeah. jason I, I i i know that one of the ways you relax is doing yoga after giving you a good workout uh, for the last hour or so yes. i'll let you get back to your yoga mat 
and uh, yeah, very different to cycling, may I point out? Um, yes, but um, going head first, very fast down a hill has a certain set of risks. At some point, you know, it's, this is safer. Uh, I'm not sure going head first onto a mat doing yoga, I think has its equally, uh, yeah. equal date risks to it. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, Jason, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.